Well, it is my privilege this morning to welcome uh, a brother of mine that I have never met, uh, James. And he is going to be sharing the Word of God with us. One of the reasons that we've asked James to come is that he is a graduate from William Jessup University. And so why would, yeah, we could do a shout out there. Uh, why would we... Why would we focus in that direction? Because that is an element of what you give towards. We support William Jessup University, uh, and, and we're the benefactors of William Jessup. Uh, if you've been here for a while, then you remember Stephen and Becky uh, Morgan, and, and they were graduates from there. C.J. Lopez is a graduate from there. My son is hopefully going to be a graduate from there. Um, and James, uh, Ale it's Alexander, right? James Alexander is a graduate and a pastor, and, uh, and he's currently located up in the Sacramento area and has a wife, and um, his family is expanding, and he's, he's looking forward to sharing the Word of God this morning. So please give him a warm welcome, and James, here you go. Incredible, incredible. Well, good morning, everybody. You guys are awake and alive. I see the coffee and donuts helped. Um, again, I just want to extend my, uh, my thankfulness for being here uh, this morning to your pastor. Um, it's not every church. I've been around a lot of churches. It's not every church where a senior pastor dedicates um, a full, complete Sunday to allow the younger generation to be able to lead, to be equipped. And so I just want to give honor to your pastor this morning. So could we just honor the man today for just everything that he's doing in this church? And I, I told him over the phone when I spoke with him, I said, you're letting a complete stranger come speak on a Sunday morning, uh, a young complete stranger, and, you're, and you want that. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And so I just want to say how incredibly cool that is to see um, but it is important sometimes to know a little bit about somebody. So here is a picture of me and my better half. There's my wife, Chelsea. Uh, we've been married almost two years, and we get the question all the time, when are you guys going to have kids? And the answer is right there, that little furball uh, named Charlie. He's a little bit bigger than that now, but that's the most adorable thing of a puppy. So I mean, we can almost go home after seeing a picture of a puppy, right? Um, but that's a little bit about who I am. I did, uh, Chelsea and I did both graduate from William Jessup University. Uh, I was pastoral ministry major there, and on behalf of the university, I just want to say thank you to your church body. You guys support the church, I mean, support the university in multiple various ways, and I can tell you, you've never met me before, I've never met you, but the seeds that you have sown into that university um, have been coming and bearing fruit in my life and lives of others, just as CJ and other people who have gone to that university, and I can't tell you the countless, um, countless friends I have, people who are in ministry all over the country, um, sometimes all over the world, that are doing things, and they were able to get the education we were, uh, that we got, and they are able to do the work of God because of churches like this, because of churches that have supported us. And I can tell you, I was one of those students who needed it. I was one of those students where this next semester is coming, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to be able to go to school this year. I can't afford it. And then there was grants, and there were scholarships, and there was donors, and there was ways that God was able to move because there was churches that I never heard about, churches I never knew, were willing to say, hey, we want to sow a seed into something bigger than us. So on behalf of the university, I just want to say thank you so much for your, your, uh, your faithfulness just to support in various ways and definitely to pray for the university. Well, hey, getting started today, I just want to ask, how many night owls do I have in here? Just a show of hands. You can stay up all night. You're a night owl. Okay. Now, how many morning people? Go ahead and raise your hand. We don't understand you. We don't understand um, why you operate that way, but you do. But us night owls, we, um, we like to stay up late. And I want, 
I wonder if we were just to go around in this room and we'd go one person at a time and we'd just ask this question. If we looked at your life, say just the last week, maybe the last month, and we asked, what were you doing at the midnight hour every single one of those nights? And I would imagine some people would say, well, I'm sleeping. It's midnight. What do you mean? What am I doing? But I'm sure some of us, maybe like myself, you're up watching Sports Center, you're watching TV, you're doing something. But if we were to look at the span of our lives and we would have it examined um, at midnight, and maybe not just midnight, but late into the night, I would imagine there'd be some of us that might be hesitant to share what was going on at that time. But today I want to talk about when we do something in the dark hours or what we do at night, what we do when no one's watching. It's just a concept here. It has the power to either imprison people around us or to set those around us free. And we're going to see why I'm saying this in the story. But the title of my message is The Midnight Miracle. And we're going to be in Acts 16. So if you do have your Bibles, go ahead and get to Acts 16 um, just so you'll be ready for it when we get to the scripture. We'll be starting in verse 16. So what is a miracle? Right? Merriam-Webster would say that a miracle is an extraordinary event, manifestation. I believe I have the slide. Boom. Got to use the clicker. Uh, An extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. So when I were to say the word miracle... Um, many things come to mind. We would think some, maybe someone being cured from cancer, it's a miracle. How in the world did that happen? Um, Other signs of miracles is we know people, or we've heard of people who get in these car accidents, and the car is completely totaled. There's no way anyone survived that. It looks like an aluminum can just got smashed, and the person's standing there without a scratch. It was a miracle. How did that happen? So we have all these different forms of what we believe is a miracle. Some of us, a miracle that, hey, we graduated college, (laughs) maybe high school, That's a miracle. When I think of miracles, I think of something like, I can eat 12 dozen donuts and it has no calories. Amen. That's a miracle right there. That's the kind of miracle I'm believing for. And so this morning, my hope, um, my prayer is that we can broaden our idea of what a miracle is. I know we have the stereotypical miracles. Maybe it's Jesus walking on water and we're like, God, I need you to show me a miracle. And you go up in the back in the pool and you just think, okay, here it is. And you sink and it doesn't happen. So I want us to broaden our understanding of what a miracle might be. And we're going to be starting in Acts 16, verse 16. A little context of what's happening. Paul is on his second missionary journey. Um, He's acquainted with Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And uh, they just had their first convert in Europe, and it was Lydia and her household. So as you can imagine, they're in new territory. Someone just gave their life to Christ. There could be some excitement. Morale could be high. And we pick up in the story in verse 16, and it says this. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are the servants of the most high God and who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, she kept this up for many days, and finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to that spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs that are unlawful for us Romans to accept and to practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. 
After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailers were commanded to guard them carefully. When they received these orders, they put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. I just want to share with you, when our intentions are set on prayer, when our intentions are set on going after the things of God, you're going to get mocked. You're going to get mocked. There will come a time in your life when you're, when you're due to your situations, due to your circumstances, you're going to say, I want to go to God for this. It might be your family members, your friends, it might be whoever. They're going to laugh at you. You going to pray about that? No, don't pray about your finances. Go get another job, you bum. <laughs> right? People look at us, what do you mean you're praying about it? But there's going to be times in our life where when we're on our way to the house of prayer, we're on our way to convene with God, and we want to do that, people are going to think we're silly for that. We're silly for we need a healing in someone in our family's life, uh, someone is sick, and they're going to think, why are you wasting your time saying these prayers? Can I tell you, it's hard enough. It's hard enough. They were on the right path, going to the place of prayer, and they're being mocked. It's hard enough because you're already getting laughed at when you're trying to do it right. Sometimes I feel like we make it harder on ourselves because we're fighting another battle. We're fighting ourselves. We're not even on the road yet to prayer. We're fighting ourselves. Can I tell you, it's hard enough living a Christian in society today. We don't need to fight against ourselves. We don't need to fight against the church. We need to be in unity saying, hey, look, we're all going to this place together. We're all agreeing on this together. And when they were doing that, they become mocked by this this slave, this woman who has this possession, this demon, and she keeps following them for days saying, hey, these are the men serving the most high God, and they're telling you how to be saved. Now, She wasn't saying anything wrong, but it was definitely a spirit that was mocking them. And I believe it got to the point to where it annoyed Paul. Now, if we can be honest, how many of you know someone whose voice just annoys you? Do you guys have that? Some of you are like, is it my mom? I can't say that. My mom's right there. But it's not my mom. But we have those people that's like, man, their voice is just like, it's either a really high nasally voice. I don't know, whatever it is for you, whatever. But we have certain voices that just bother us and just, irk us. And I just imagine Paul and them are just walking. They're going about their business, but this woman's voice is driving them crazy. And finally, he turns around. He just says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. So what can we gain from that? What can we see and learn from that? Well, what it is, is that sometimes our opposition, the struggle that we're in, the storm that we're in, or even just our enemy is only one shout of Jesus away. And no, I don't mean like when your boss is annoying, you just say, in the name of Jesus, I command you out. No, that would be weird and awkward, and that would not look good on your review. But what I mean about speaking Jesus to your opposition, to your enemy, to your struggle, to your storm, what I mean is speaking truth, speaking love, speaking humility, right? Speaking the things that you know to be true of God and of you to those situations, to those people, not just allowing it to keep going on and on and on and on. And I promise you, when we, come, when we come against those things with the highest authority, right, Paul goes straight to the highest authority in the name of Jesus Christ. When we do those things, our opposition, the naysayers, the negativity, it goes silent. The depression in our minds, it goes silent. That voice that's telling us we're worthless, it goes silent. That's where our power comes from, and it comes through a life of prayer, right? Prayer is one of those things that, man, even as a pastor, sometimes I'm like, God, I have to pray like you know everything. Wait, if you already know it all, do I really have to say it to you? I mean, shouldn't you just already know what my heart is and what my desire is? I don't know if you ever have those thoughts. I have those thoughts. I'm like, God, why do I have to pray? Like, you know what I want. You know what I need. Whatever. Just do it. Well, it doesn't work that way. Right? Prayer, God designed it for us to be in a relationship with him. 
but he also designed it so that we can be in relationship with each other. And I believe the foundation of every miracle is and will always be prayer. But it's not just any kind of prayer. It's what I call we prayers, not me prayers. See, in verse 16, it says simply that we were going to the place of prayer and we were met by this slave woman. It says that it's showing that he wasn't doing it alone. Paul wasn't going to this place alone, but that there was a group of them. It was a we prayer. What I mean by we prayer is I mean coming together. This is why we have church. This is why we have a community is that we can come together and have common unity of saying, this is what we need God to move in. This is what we need to see God work in. Now let's pray together. But what does that mean? That means we have to have a common goal, right? If I say, man, I want, I want the church to, to grow by 200 people, and you're thinking, man, I really want them to redo the nursery, and then you're thinking, man, the bathrooms need some help, or you're really, man, can we get a new worship pastor? Or, everyone's singing all these different things they're praying to God for, which is great to have individual prayers, but there's power when we unite our, our hearts, when we unite what we're praying and seeking God after, right? They were together. Even Jesus, when he teaches the disciples how to pray, right? He, he, he's teaching them. It's everything is us. Everything is we. Father, forgive us for our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, and deliver us from the, everything was communal. There was unity in it. It wasn't individualistic. It was us together, and so we need to be able to come together and have a united goal that we're praying after as a church. We're believing for the city of Concord, for our community. We're believing for our schools. What is it? Fill in that blank, but we're coming together as one body and saying, this is what we're seeking God after. This is what we're all praying for together. But then hear me, now we all got personal struggles, right? Well, so how do we have the we in our personal struggles? It means we have to be transparent. It means the things that you're struggling with, whether it's in your health, whether it's in your marriage, it's in your finances, it's in your personal struggle. You have to be willing to be transparent with not only your pastor, but with your fellow believers. Hey, this is what we're going through. Sometimes we think we have to be ashamed that we have struggles in life. We have to be ashamed that we have a storm, like, I'm not that holy because that person's not struggling, but why am I struggling with this? I can't share that with them. No, that's the enemy. God wants us to be able to say, hey, man, this is the struggle I have. Get along some other believers in your church and say, will you guys join with me in prayer about this? We need to see deliverance in this. But we think that we need to do it all by ourselves. Yeah, we got this issue in our marriage, but hey, you tell your wife, don't tell nobody, though. It's just, it's just we're going to pray to God, but don't tell anyone. I don't want anyone to know about it. That's not what God designed the body to be for. He designed it for us to all be together in unison to be able to go after these things. So life is hard alone. And it wasn't meant to be alone. God created us to be in relationship not only with him, but with each other so that we can see these prayers, these things that we have come to pass. So again, it's all about the we prayers and not the me prayers. Notice in this, in this story, we see that Paul was accompanied by Silas, Timothy, and Luke, because Luke's obviously writing this, so we know Luke is getting this account, but it says only Paul and Silas were arrested and taken to the marketplace. Well, why would that be? My thoughts are this, that Paul and Silas were clearly the leaders on this trip, and so easily, when, it's, it's the old phrase, uh, when you want to kill a snake, you cut the head off first, right? When something is trying to take something out, you go after the leaders first. You go after those who are leading, and that's why it's so important to pray for our pastors, I mean, sometimes I mean, we think, like, the pastors, they're just so holy and righteous. They pray for us all day. They pray for the church. They pray for the city. Well, who's praying for them? That's why it's so important that we lift up and protect and guard and pray for our pastors and their family. Pray that God would, would just put his protection around them. God would continue to fill them with wisdom and knowledge. God would continue to fill his cup. Because whatever fills is going to spill. 
So if his cup's dry, guess who's also getting a dry cup? The rest of us. And so we see that Paul and Silas were the ones who were taken to this court. And look at the difference in accusation, right? It says that they were upset because now their financial gain was taken from them. They were going to make all this money on this woman who was doing these fortune telling. But when they get to the magistrates, they switch up their story. They say, no, no, no. What they're doing is disturbing the peace. Because in that Roman culture right there, that was something that they did not play with. You can't disturb the peace with your Christianity. What's wrong with you? Order them to be beaten with rods. And why is that important for us? Because I, I truly think that the, the, the temperature, the climate in society today is turning into this, is that whenever we share the truth of God, whenever we talk about the word of God, whenever we talk about our faith and belief, it's becoming something that's disturbing the peace of those around us. We see it in schools. We see it in community. We see it in workplaces. If you tell somebody a Christian, you're like, ah, I don't know, can I get in trouble for that? Am I imposing my beliefs on them about that? That's the temperature and the climate society is going in. And I don't see it lightening up. I don't see it becoming any less than. And so what must we do? I think it goes back to prayer. It goes back to a climate of prayer. Because I'll tell you this. People look in the school system now and they're like, they're trying to kick God out or they already have and the schools are crazy. Can I tell you the experience I've had in the past three years? I've seen campus ministry start and grow to multiple hundreds of kids turning to Christ. I've been in luncheon rooms every single week where we had 200 kids coming to hear about God, they would skip lunch. Kids who want to get baptized in the pools of their high school because God is moving on their campus. So while, yes, people in the temperature of society might say, oh, 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 God's not welcome here. You can't share your faith. If we would go to God in prayer first, get in line with his will, I've seen them blow it up. I've seen them just turn the situation upside down. And I can tell you, it's not just in Sacramento. I've seen it all over California, the school system is in need of God. I talk to principals all the time. I say, what do you need for your school? Our kids are fatherless. Can you come on campus? They're asking me, the pastor, to come on campus to share the love of Christ with their kids because nothing else is working. No system is working. Nothing that they can conjure up, nothing that the district can send their way is working. Kids are still suicidal. Kids are still getting bullied. Kids are still addicted to pornography. So what is the answer? The answer is prayer. The answer is prayer going to God first in prayer before we try to bring our own methodologies to the table. So we see that they um, are taken to this center and they are going to get beaten. And I want you just to imagine this scene. Paul and Silas are brought before the magistrates. It's in a, a town marketplace, a town center where there's other people there visible ready to see what's going to happen to these men. And they strip them down as the custom would be. They would strip them down naked to humiliate them. And they would take out these rods and they would beat them around 40 to 45 times, as was the custom for the Roman culture. And after they would beat them with these rods, they would come with open gashes and wounds, possibly broken legs, broken ribs. They would be <laughs> battered up pretty bad. And then they're dragged and they're taken to this prison cell. But they want to make sure they don't get out, so they tell the guard, guard them carefully. So he drags them into the centermost part of the prison, the lowest and darkest part the part where there's no light. Think about this. You have open wounds. You've been beaten. You're exhausted. And now they throw you into the most filth and bacteria-ridden place. They throw you into a place where there's just complete, utter darkness, where no one, there's no sign of hope. There's no sign of light. And they lock you in stocks. Now, these stocks are, can be so many different ways that they would do it. It says they bind their feet. So sometimes they would bind their feet their hands or heads like this where they're bent over. They, the idea is to put them in an uncomfortable position with their hands up like this so that they would have a hard time sleep. Now, what does this look like? 
looks like someone who might be surrendering to God. But this is the position that they would put them in to last the whole night, to make it as, as, as physically exhausting and draining as they possibly could. And yet, what were they doing at midnight? It says that they were praising and singing hymns. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But just think about the level of low that their life is in. Think about the darkness that they're experiencing. Some of us have been in these caves. We're truthful, we're honest. We've been in places in life where it feels like that. It feels like we're so deep in this dungeon. There's no hope. I can't get out. We're so deep in debt. Our marriage is so broken, there's no recovering it. Our relationship with our parents is so broken. Our, or our, par- our relationship with our kids is so broken. We're at a place of hopelessness, and everyone around us is in the same boat. Have you ever been that way? Like, we're just, everyone around you is just, like, miserable, and all of a sudden you start feeling that way too? This is how I explain it, right? If you're in school, um, some of us, that wasn't that long ago. Some of us maybe a little bit longer ago. But when you were in school and you took a test, okay, and you got an F on the test, you flunked it. You got, like, 16%. What's the first thing you do? The first thing you do is, is find someone else who flunked the test. The fir- and as soon as you find, oh, oh you failed too? Hey, hey, I guess we both failed. And automatically you feel better about yourself. And then you realize, oh, you failed too? No, see, I'm not that dumb. It's just a teacher, right? And we try to gather everyone else who failed. And now all of a sudden we feel a little bit better because other people are suffering too. That's how messed up we are. And then we walk away thinking we got an A on the test. No, but really it's just 15 of you failed. But they were in this dark place that other people were experiencing this darkness as well. And unknown to them, see, the Romans, the world was trying to put them in a place of hopelessness, put them in the darkest, deepest place. And it says they brought them to the innermost center part of the dungeon. And so there's times when we might feel like we're getting placed in the worst positioning, but God in the background was really giving them a center stage to what's about to happen at midnight. So it says then, picking up in verse 25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Somebody is always listening to what comes out of your mouth. Always listening. Not just little kids, it's people at work, it's wherever. And especially as a Christian, ooh, I just hope I catch them. They just want to hear you like slip and cuss under your breath at work. Or they want to hear you just say something that like, aren't you a believer? You shouldn't say that. Even we do that to each other in the church. Like, oh, do you know brother so-and-so pastor? He was telling me about what he was doing. Like we, we look for those things. People are always listening to what we are saying. And I love how it says at about midnight they were praying. Now if that was me, I'd be praying, but... My prayers would be a lot different than what I believe Paul's were. I'd be praying God would wipe all them dudes out, kill them all. I'd sound like David when he says, I pray that you would take their children and just throw them into the rocks. And just, like, I'd be praying these evil things. God, they just beat me for no reason. Why? <laughs> but Paul and Silas are in there like, Jesus, we love you. Right? They're just like, what? Who's doing that? What is up with these guys? How can they do that? I believe it's because they've already established a prayer life. They were already on the journey to prayer. Get this. They were on their way to pray to God, and they were interrupted by the enemy. Opposition came. They were trying to do it right. Opposition came. Opposition beat them up, tore them up, humiliated them, cast them into the dark, and they said, oh, that ain't going to stop us. We're still going to get to where we're at. We're just going to pray right here then. So you can't be deterred by the first hit that opposition brings you. 
If God's given you a dream, God's birthed something in your life, just because the first roadblock comes, just because the first hurdle comes, jump over it. Continue going. Push on. As Paul would say, run the race with the intent to win the prize. Too often I see Christians give up. God's birthed something in the heart they want to do, and then it gets a little bit hard, or it gets to a point where they actually have to pray because they don't have any ideas in their head, and they're like, nah, I don't want to do that. I must have heard wrong. They still decided to pray, and the prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26 says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken. At once all the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because the thought of the prisoners, he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for the lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Something has happened in this man's life. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them in his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy. Get this, he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. I ask you, what would your life look like about what you're doing at midnight? Can you imagine this is your midnight story? Well, actually, Pastor, last night, man, it was crazy. We were out, and our neighbor, he was like, man, the one that's always pruning my tree, and I get so upset at him, that neighbor that always is grumpy and complains because of the way we park our cars or move our garbage, that neighbor, well, we, we had an opportunity to talk to him, and it was like midnight, and he invited us over to his house, and we were talking to him and his, his wife and his kids, and we were telling them about Jesus, and they all got saved. And then we were like, man, you guys want to get baptized? We got a, a pool. And they're like, yeah, let's go do that. And, and so we went to the backyard, and we baptized them, and their whole life was changed. That's what we did last night at midnight. What did you do? <laughs> Just imagine, this is what I'm saying. We need a change in what we think a miracle is. When we think of miracles, too, we normally think for ourselves. We think, I need a miracle for me, not I want to see a miracle done in your life. But this, this story of this, all of a sudden, this violent earthquake that happens is incredible. So it's in the midst of midnight. They're in a posture of, of praise, a posture of surrenderance to God. They begin to pray and sing out hymns. There's the prisoners li- listening. And now, all of a sudden, this, this earthquake that's so violent, it rattles the foundation of the prison. All the doors are swung open. All the chains are dropped. And they're all free to go but they don't. See, not, they weren't praying against anyone. They were praying to God. They're doing what they can. But when we display joy, get this, when we display joy in the midst of our suffering, praise in the midst of our pain, it reaches people's lives at their core. Think about the prisoners. They know that those who go in the center of the prison, they did something really bad, and they probably got beat up really bad. But here these guys are, the prisoners, I imagine, maybe they're having self-loathing. They're feeling bad. They're angry for themselves. They see somebody else come in in a worse condition, and they hear them praising God and singing out hymns. Okay, there's something different about them. They have something that I don't have, and I want to know about it, so I'm going to listen. Even when the door comes open and they could run out, they're like, oh, no, 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 there's something going on here. When you respond with joy, when you respond with praise to God, when you could still worship God when you're in the middle of your trial, the middle of your storm, It's not always just for you. It's for those who are listening. Worship is not just for ourselves. God will use your worship 
to set other people free. This is what we have to get. The miracle was not that the prison doors were opened and the chains fell. That wasn't the miracle. That's not why the earthquake came. The earthquake came to not unlock the chains, but to unlock the, the jailer's heart. That's what changed. That's what the miracle is. We need a perspective shift. We too, uh, too quickly, we look for the physical manifestation of the miracle. They were healed with cancer. They went in, they had it, now they don't. They, 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 they had this report and now they don't. But the miracle was that his heart was changed. This is the greatest miracle there is that God can ever perform is that he can change our hearts, that he can shift who we are, that he can, by one action of other people praising and worshiping God, now a whole household is saved and eternity is ever changed. And we come into church sometimes like, I don't want to worship. I don't like that song. That's not my song, so I'm not going to clap my hands. Man, I wish they would sing something a little newer or younger or some people are like, I wish they would sing the hymns. Why can't we get a hymn in church? Right, pastors hear this all the time. But what if you came into the house of God saying, you know what, today when I worship, that person next to me who knows what me and my wife have been struggling with, they can see that we're both surrendering and pressing into God, and they can see that we can still worship God in the midst of this struggle, and all of a sudden their faith increases. They're like, wow, how can they still worship him even though their life sucks right now? And it gives life to that person. It get, gives life to other people who are in bondage and who are in prison. This is the power and I believe the responsibility God has given us to be praying Christians who constantly, consistently will worship him no matter what the circumstance is. Right? I, I, I get so frustrated when people come into church and I just don't feel it today. You don't feel it? Yeah, I just don't feel it today. Or I don't, eh, or, or, or they don't go to church because eh, I, I didn't get good sleep tonight or whatever the case may be. And I get life happens. But we say we don't feel it when we have an opportunity to come together corporately to worship the God of the universe, the God who rescued us and saved us, and we can't give him two hours in a week? Man, that's scary to me sometimes. And I'm not saying I don't ever have those thoughts. Trust me, I do. Sometimes I'm like, oh, do I really got to get up and go and be at the church early and I do it. It's tough. That's why we need to have unity and be praying together for one another because it, it is tough. It is a battle that we have to face. But I'm telling you, when you can worship in the midst of your suffering, when you can worship, when you're experiencing these trials, when you're going through these hard things, it sets other people free. Because they're seeing it in your life. You don't just have to tell them about it. Show them. People say, oh, God's good. Let me see that God is good even when you're struggling. That speaks way louder than you just telling that person who's in a hard time. God's good. He's going to be faithful. Just trust him. Keep praying. Keep believing. Put it on display. Let other people come and be a part of that pain, a part of that struggle. And you'll see the prison doors of people's lives, the bondages that they've been enslaved to. God will rattle that foundation because God, he's not a God of partial miracles. God's going to do it. He's going to do it. And we see that. He's not like yeah, section B through C, prison doors open now. Oh, sorry, not you. Uh, maybe left arm chains come off, not right. Like, no, he does it for everybody in the house. So sometimes it's important to know who's in your house. I want a Paul and Silas in my church. <laughs> Hello. I want someone who's like, hey, at midnight, they're praying and pressing in for their church. I want to be around some believers that, man, while I'm snoozing and sleeping, they're up praying for me and my wife. They're up praying for our family. They're praying for our children in school. They're praying for, that's what I want. Those are the kind of people I want to be around. And if I want that, then I need to be that for somebody else. It takes a body praying together, going after this thing together, because God is not a God of partial miracles. 
And here's the other thing we have to do. We have to stop praying to God about our problems and start telling our problems about our God. See, this is what we do. We just, well, God, this person at work, and then this happened, and my wife, she won't listen, or my husband, uh, he won't show any emotion to me, or he won't listen to me. He just tries to solve, whatever the case may be. And we tell, we tell God all of our problems all day, but we never once turn around and say, no, wait. God's given me this authority. He's, he's given me his spirit. It's living inside of me. I could, let me go ahead and tell my issues about my God and what he can do. It's a perspective shift. It's a different mindset to think that we just have to run back to God. God, they were mean to me on the playground today, Lord. Can you just fix it? No. Let's go out into the, our problems. Let's face them and say, look, yes, this is what I'm having, but my God says this about me. He tells me this is my self-worth and value. He's the one who validates me in everything that I do. It's not my job. It's not my occupation. It's that I'm a child of God. That's first and, and foremost. And then you begin to walk these things out with authority because you have a prayer life. But if you try to do that with no prayer life, you're going to look puffed up at first, and they're going to pop you like a little balloon, and you're going to fizzle out. And I see it. People try to, they try to put up a facade. They try to act like they're all righteous and mighty and a prayer warrior and all these things. That'll, that'll expose you. That'll come out eventually. You know, if I could be transparent in, our, in, in my own life, my wife and I recently transitioned and moved. I was telling your pastor about it. And we moved with neither of us having a job. Here I am. I'm newly married. You know, you're supposed to, like, provide, take care. Both my wife and I, we moved. We got no job, no income, no money. And I bet you a lot of people are like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? And can I tell you, there's, there's two days. I still, to this day, I'm, I'm, I'm working as an outreach pastor at our church, but it's, it's bivocational right now. We haven't had income. And, like, it's been a whirlwind for about five months, four months. And there's days where I am just completely like, look at me. I got so much faith. I could just go without a job and say, God's my provider. Woo! And just feel good. And when I tell people, yeah, we don't have a job. We moved out here and just, we'll just believe in God because we have that much faith. We just have all, we know he's going to do everything for us. And I could act like that. And there's sometimes I feel like that. But can I be honest? There's other days I'm in a fetal position right here. Like, God, we ain't got no money in the bank account. What are we going to do? And I'm terrified and I have no faith. And I'm just worried and I'm confused. And maybe I made a mistake. Maybe we shouldn't have moved. Maybe, and I start to doubt and I start to, that's the tension we all live with, right? And the only thing that balances us, the only thing that centers us is prayer. It's continual being in conversation with God and being transparent and open with others in our lives saying, hey, this is what we're going through. We need help. And our closest friends, the people we trust, they know the situation we're in. And because they know the situation we're in and we're all praying together, it's been incredible to see how God, time after time, he jumps in and creates a miracle. And then this came through. And then this job came through. And my wife got a job being a teacher. And all these different things fell into place. But it was because we were open enough to be transparent. This is what we're going through. And we were obedient enough to go back to God and say, God, this is what we're praying for. And we need you to, to come through because we can't do this on our own. So at about midnight, this miracle took place. And as I said, the miracles in our lives aren't always just for us, but for those who are around us. The way that we choose to respond will always speak louder than the first words that we say. How are you going to physically respond? Is your response prayer? Is your response surrender? Is your response, God, I don't have the answers. I need you to send them to me. And can I tell you, sometimes we fail because we rely on our past success. Sometimes we think, well, that worked. Then I'll just replicate that. And what that does, that negates us from being obedient to saying, God, what would you have me do today? 
God, what would you have me do the next day? Instead of saying, well, this is what I did last week. This is what worked. And now we no longer have to rely on talking to God and convening with him every single day. That's not what he wants. He wants us us in fellowship with him daily, praying to him daily, seeking him out daily. So we we must remember, if we want God to do something new, that we can't keep doing the same thing. It's not how we're, God, I want you to do something new in my life, my finances, all these. But I'm going to stay the exact same person. I'm not going to change my life in any way. I just want you to do it, God. And we start rubbing our little genie lamp. Okay. Nothing happens. Sometimes it requires us to have some change in our life. And again, I want to close with this. It says in verse 34, He was filled with joy that he and his whole household believed in God. I just love that verse. When I read that, it just popped out to me so much. He was with such joy because he and his whole household believed in God. Only God can take a story of two men being beaten and humiliated and thrown in prison and turn it around to a man who was persecuting them, a man who was keeping them in bondage, is now the person who's feeding them in his house, is now the person who's tending to their wounds, is now the person who's receiving and asking them, how can I be saved? Please tell me. Okay, you told me the answer. Now come to my household. Tell my wife. Tell my children. Tell my servants. Tell everyone. They need to know about this God. Only God can turn a story around like that. And he can turn that story around in your own life. And I love the fact that he was so filled with joy, not just because he believed in God, but because his whole household believed in God. And I guarantee you, there's those of us in this room, you're believing still for that promise that your household will be saved. You're believing for your kids to know who Christ is. You're believing for your, your, your relatives, your siblings, whatever it may be. You're believing for that. Can I tell you, keep pressing in. Keep bringing that to God. Keep bringing that up in, in corporate prayer allowing God to be in the midst, allowing others to know that's what you're praying for. I've seen it in my own life, and I know it to be true. If we trust in him, he will be faithful. If we keep going to him we, and seek him out, he will give us the answers that come in line with his will. And I want to encourage you with this. If you talk to the God of the universe in the morning, there's no one you can't talk to in the afternoon. I know we have introverted people. We have outgoing people. Some people, I don't want to deal with conflict. If you can talk to God and truly have an understanding of who he is in the morning, there's not a single conflict on earth you should be afraid of. There's not a single conversation you might have to have with someone that you should be afraid of, even if it's the person sitting right next to you. You might need to have that conversation. I believe some of us might need to go away from this place and have some courageous conversations with some people, some conversations about forgiveness, reconciliation, conversations about thankfulness or about something that has happened that we need to bring to light or we need to speak truth and love to. And I want to close, close, and it's my third close, with this story. There was a time about three years ago I was privileged to go to the, the country of Nepal. It's right in between India and China. Not a lot of people have even heard of it. It's where the Himalayan mountains are. And so we're in Nepal, which is it's completely illegal to evangelize, to tell people about uh, Christ. It's an all-Hindu nation, Hindu and Buddhism. And I'm telling you, when you read the Bible, Old Testament, about idolatry, it's like that. Everything is idolatry. Everything is some temple. Everything is some symbol for Hinduism or Buddhism. And it's just a spiritually dark place. It's one of the a few remaining ancient cities in the world. Um, and it, it, it's a beautiful place, but it's a dark place. And, and they took us to uh, what they called it Barbecue Temple, which is it's one of the holy temples for Hinduism. And they showed us, and while we were there, uh, we're standing right outside of a temple that less than 100 years ago, they were still sacrificing uh, children to. Once a day, they would sacrifice a child. 
and we're watching them as they're performing the rituals, they're burning these bodies, the smell, the just, it, I can't even describe it to you. And we're watching these, these, these poor boys, these, these orphans who are digging through the remains of all the people they just burned to hopefully find an earring or a gold tooth or something so that they can eat. And we're just in this complete other darkness of a place. It's starting to get dark, and we're on our way back, and we're walking through these alleyways. And as we're walking, think like New York, as far as like big city alleyways, but just like triple the people, smaller the road. And we're walking down these alleyways, and as three of us are walking, we see a man who looked like he might have had some, some mental handy, uh, disabilities and definitely had a physical, um, his arm was just mangled in such a way I've never seen, and his fingers were all twisted, and he's sitting on the side of a road, and as we're walking, he had a Bible sitting next to him. Okay, you don't see a Bible in Nepal. This is weird. And two of us, myself and one other member of the team, we both kind of stopped and just felt like we need to go talk to this man. So we had the pastor's son with us who's translating with us, and we're trying to talk to him, but he just, he's, I don't know if he's, he's high, I don't know if he's on drugs or if he's, he's drunk, but it was very hard to understand what he was saying. But my friend was asking him, do you believe in this Bible? Do you believe... And what this says, and the man is saying yes, and he tells him a quick gospel presentation, tells him about Jesus, and he says, do you believe that God can heal you? And so we begin to pray for this, this man whose mangled hand is twisted in so many different ways. All his fingers are going in a different direction. We begin to pray for this man's hand. And as we begin to pray for this, I see the man first lift up his arm. Okay, this arm that was just twisted or mangled, he lifts up his arm, and I'm like, whoa, it's working. Like, wait, this, this actually happens? Like, whoa, we read about it, but, and so I'm watching, and we're praying, and I open my eyes, and there's a police officer who's this close to my face, staring at me, cold, and I'm like, uh-oh, what are we doing? And he looks, and he just turns around, and he walks away, and so we're still praying for this man on the side of the street, and all of a sudden, this riot breaks out, where a group of four or five people just get into this brawl fist fight and they bump into us and now there's this man who's grabbing on my shoulder all of us are praying with our eyes open now it's like whoa revelation right we're just all like what and this guy is grabbing on my arm and he's mocking me and he's yelling at me and he can hear us saying uh the name of jesus and we're praying for this man and i'm watching this man's arm go up and his fingers begin to straighten and we're just like and we're praying for this man for god to heal him but it just keeps intensifying it keeps getting crazier and crazier. There is now about 30 or 40 people surrounding us, yelling at us. I don't know what they're yelling. It's getting very hostile. There's this fight's breaking out. This man is pulling on me. Um, he, he, he's trying to mock me. And we see the man's whole hand, all his fingers go straight, and his thumb is still bent like that. And right at that moment, the pastor's son, Horiafin, says, he stops, he stops praying and translating. He says, we have to go. It's way too dangerous. We have to get out of here. Because we're in a place where you can't be a Christian. You can't. It, it was as if, Someone turned on a flashlight in the middle of darkness and all the darkness knew and started flooding towards us. And we had to bust through this crowd and literally take off in a run down the alleyway to get to our vehicle to get out. And I sat and thinking like, what, what just happened? What did I just experience? What? God, I saw this man's, I saw his hand. I saw the condition it was in. It was, there was even no muscle on it. It had, it, it had never been used. You could tell it was just skin and bone. And all of a sudden he begins to straighten it out. And I say, okay, is that the miracle the man was healed? And that, that could be the story, and that could be what I took from it. But truly the miracle was this. The miracle was that, that I was there believing in God. I was a believer. I believed in God. I was a Christian, and I'm in this place in this country, Nepal, praying for a man. The miracle was of my own salvation. 
See, we always get caught up thinking the miracle is the physical thing. But as my mom or my coach who came here, this man knew me before. Man, he knew me and he helped save my life. But the fact that I was in that place, the fact that I'm standing here is a greater miracle than what I experience in the physical. And that is the same for your life. That's the same for your family. The man says the jailer was so filled with joy because he and his household believed. That is the miracle. We always look for signs and wonders and miracles to be this big old grand thing, and we forget that when people come down and surrender their heart to God, that's a miracle that heaven is rejoicing about. The miracle seeing souls saved, seeing people come to know who Christ is, seeing people giving their life over to Christ and praying and believing for God to do more in their lives. Can I pray for you all this morning? Father, we are so, God, grateful. God, I'm so grateful that I know, God, I'm not deserving to be here, God. God, I know who I was and what, you, what you've done in my life and what you're continuing to do in my life, Lord. And I just pray this morning, God, that just the, the word of God would just be so encouraging to people's hearts. God, wherever they're at right now in life, whatever they're experiencing, the pain, the troubles, the heartaches, God, even the joys, whatever it is, God, help them to always have a hunger and thirst, Lord, to come back to you, to keep praying with you, God, to keep seeking you out, to be transparent with others, Lord, and to believe for greater things that you're going to do in their lives and the lives of this church. And Father, I just lift up uh, Pastor Jeremy, God, in this house, Lord, that this will be a beacon of hope, God, that this will be a lighthouse into this city, God, into the schools, to the children, Lord, that you would use it, God, that would, uh, just as a lighthouse, God, it would bring those who are lost at sea, they're lost in the middle of the storm, and they would see this little glimpse of hope. They would see this little glimpse of a light, and they would begin to march towards it. They'd begin to come into this house, God, where they'd be fed and nourished and tended for, God, with, uh, with just faithfulness and love, Lord. And so I pray that you continue to do a move and work in this house, Lord. We thank you so much for all your goodness, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Jeremy.